Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Aaron Brake and Nathan Apodaca. How are you guys doing there today? Good. Thanks for having me. Good, Clinton. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. Uh, no real complaints over here. Now, we're advocates and voices for the unborn with Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. Now, before we begin the episode proper, Aaron had an event going on this past weekend. So, Aaron, why don't you tell us a little bit about how it went? Yeah, yesterday I spoke via Skype for Catalina Foothills Church, their apologetics class, Reason Why. I was invited by Dan Grossenbach, who I used to go to school with at Biola. We did our uh, MA in apologetics there at the same time. So gave uh, the case for life for class and then opened it up for Q&A. Was there for about an hour and a half. Uh, went really well. Got some good feedback. I'm hoping the recording and video it turns out well and that if that comes together then I'll, I'll post that online so that you can see that great i'm glad it went well and we'll be looking forward to seeing that if you're able to post it online now the argument that we're here to talk about today is called the equal rights argument and so we're back to looking at philosophical arguments for the pro-life position we're going to be talking about this argument in three steps. First, I'm going to outline the argument. Then we're going to give some abortion choice justifications and how we can respond to those justifications as pro-life people. And then we're going to give the pro-life position, the pro-life answer to what grounds equal rights. So the equal rights argument is really just an argument that investigates what it is that grants us equal rights. And then it looks at the unborn, and if the unborn shares that, that property, then they would have equal rights with us. And if they don't, then we would have proper justification to be able to kill them in abortion. Now, the argument has been attributed to J.P. Moreland, who's a philosopher at Biola University. I don't know if this argument has ever appeared in print, but... My understanding is that it's been formulated by J.P. Moreland, and it is expounded by Justice for All. Justice for All 
was made aware of this argument by J.P. Moreland in personal correspondence with them, and then they expound this argument at their seminars. So the argument is basically presented in three different questions. Number one is, do we all deserve equal treatment? That is, do all adult human beings deserve to be treated equally? Do we all deserve to be treated with equal respect? So question number two then is, doesn't that mean that there's something that's the same about us? Doesn't it follow that if your answer to question number one, that we all deserve equal treatment is yes, then that seems to imply that there's something that's the same about us that we all have equally, that grounds our necessity to be treated equally. And so question number three then is, what is it that's the same about us? Now there are several justifications that an abortion choice person might present to respond to this equal rights argument. One abortion choice person might say, well, you need a concept of self in order to have rights or to warrant respect as a, as a human person. That, that is, you have to be able to see yourself as existing through time. You have to be self-aware. Or another person might say, well, you have to have desires, because if you don't desire something, then you're not really being harmed by being deprived of it. Another abortion choice person might say, well, it's sentience that grounds your value. And now sentience is something that is often misunderstood, especially in discussions regarding abortion and equal rights. A lot of people tend to equate sentience with self-awareness and consciousness, but that's not, not actually what sentience means. Sentience is the capacity or the ability to feel things. Specifically, as regards what gives us equal rights, people say, well, it's the ability to feel pain. So when they say sentience, if they're using the term properly, they usually mean that it's your ability to feel pain that grants equal rights. If you can feel pain, then I have a responsibility not to hurt you. Another justification might be interests. We all have an interest to be kept alive, and the unborn don't, and so that's what—that's uh, the thing that's different about us. Now, it bears to be said, before we go into the, the responses that we can give, that there are abortion choice philosophers who make much more sophisticated versions of the argument than we're going to be responding to here. We'll get into what the philosophers argue at a later time. Right now, we're only going to be presenting responses to the most common ways that these arguments are presented when you have discussions with people on college campuses or in your sphere of influence, such as at work or with family or friends. So we're only going to be responding to the, the most street-level versions of these arguments. We'll respond to the more academic, sophisticated versions of these arguments at a later time. As Stephanie Gray points out in her book, Love Unleashes Life, which, by the way, is a really good book for pro-life advocates to have on their bookshelves, mm -hmm. there is an important concept to keep in mind when these issues come up. And so many of the functional abilities that are pointed to in order to justify the non-value of the unborn, like what Clinton just listed, desire, sentience, interest, well, many of them are, in fact, due to age, not a fundamental difference in kind between those of us outside the womb and when we were inside the womb. And as Chris Kayser points out, an animal like, say, a dog or a cat may not possess the capacity like we can to read a book or engage in rational discourse like we're doing right now. Well, simply because cats and dogs do not have that capacity in virtue of what they are. And Clinton has talked about capacities and potentialities and previous episodes. However, the embryonic and fetal human beings and the newborn human beings that they will soon be lack that immediately exercisable capacity for rational discourse simply because they are too young to exercise it. Not that they lack the feature, which is humanness, to make such an activity possible in the first place. 
And then just a little analogy that I really liked. Uh, Chris Kayser gave an analogy in his book, The Ethics of Abortion, where he pointed out that all human beings have the natural capacity to either be a mother or a father. So if you're male, you have the capacity to become a father. And if you're female, you have the capacity to become a mother, even though we might not ever exercise that capacity by never, say, engaging in sexual intercourse, that we may never reproduce, but we still have that capacity to do so in virtue of what we are, not because of something that we became or some accidental characteristic. Now, of course, we would argue that there are problems with each of these justifications. There are some issues with these justifications that these justifications actually all have in common, and so I'll cover these. And then there are specific ones to each justification, and I'll cover those in, in just a few minutes. One issue that they all have in common is that they put the cart before the horse. Form precedes function, not the other way around. In other words, as long as we're not talking about an artifact, something that you construct artificially, then it's the nature of the thing that determines what the functions are, not the other way around. So as there are certain things that come with being a human being that you develop because you're a human being. There are some things that come with being a person that you develop because you're a person. So as you must be a human in order to develop your human properties, you must be a person in order to develop your personal properties. These properties, self-awareness, sentience, consciousness, etc., are properties of persons. They're not properties that make persons. Another issue with these is that they are all subject to the episodic problem. If we ground personhood in a property like sentience or consciousness or self-awareness or something like that, then personhood would come and go episodically whenever you fall asleep, enter a reversible coma, or go under general anesthesia before a surgery. But no one believes you have to exercise these properties at all times in order to be a person. You retain your personhood because these capacities flow from your nature. So the reason that you don't cease to be a person when you fall asleep is because your nature doesn't change. You still have the capacity to perform these functions, but you have them inherently. You're not able to presently exercise them because you've temporarily lost consciousness. Finally, uh, the issue that all of these have in common is that these qualifications either prove too much or they prove too little. These properties will either exclude infants from the moral community, meaning that you'll have to believe that infanticide is morally permissible, as then infants would not be part of the moral community, or it will include some animals in the moral community, meaning that if someone kills those animals, you would have to hold them as accountable as if they had killed a human being. That means that if someone were to kill an animal, you would have to punish them as severely as you would had they killed a human being. So some properties, such as self-awareness, means that infants would not be included because you don't become self-aware until sometime after your first birthday. So if you ground our equal rights in self-awareness, that means that infants would not be included. But if you base it on a property like consciousness, which you might define as an awareness of the world around you, not necessarily self-awareness, but just a general awareness of the world around you, then many kinds of animals would be included, such as dogs, cats, and others, because they have some sort of at least minimal awareness of the world around them. And so if you were to kill a dog or a cat, then you would have to be tried as severely as if you had killed a human being. Timothy Brahm at Justice for All offers a thought experiment called the zoo shooting which helps illustrate this he says imagine we are at the zoo and there is a madman who runs into the zoo with a gun and fires off six shots before he is caught now the first bullet kills a cockroach the second kills a possum 
The third kills Coco the gorilla, the fourth a newborn, the fifth a toddler, and the sixth kills a middle-aged woman. Now the question is, how many acts of homicide should the madman be charged with? Now I think the most people would say three, namely the three human beings who were killed. But if you attempt to ground equal rights or value in a property such as well, self-awareness, then you still get three homicides, but you get the wrong three. If self-awareness is what grounds our rights or value or places us within the moral community, then killing Coco the gorilla would be considered homicide, but not killing the newborn. Uh, after all, Coco can pass the mirror test and can communicate with sign language while the newborn cannot. The newborn is not going to develop self-awareness until later. But this seems very obviously counterintuitive. Uh, and this helps illustrate the problem with threshold arguments, as Clinton mentioned earlier. They attempt to ground our rights or value in something we can do rather than in what we are, human beings who share a common human nature. So threshold arguments will either include obvious examples of non-persons, or they will exclude obvious examples of persons, and they often appear arbitrary and self-serving. Now, as I mentioned before, each of these properties have problems in common with each of them. But each of these properties also have individual things which, which are wrong as well. If we talk about that someone needs self-awareness, aside from the problems already mentioned, well, we cease to be self-aware at multiple times throughout our lives. Every night when we fall asleep, we cease to be self-aware. Whenever we go under general anesthesia before a surgery, or whenever we enter a reversible coma, at each of these times, we cease to be self-aware, but we continue to be persons. Now, when it comes to desires, the problem is that you don't necessarily have to desire something in order to be harmed by being deprived of it. We can think of, for example, an infant who has a rich uncle who dies, and this rich uncle leaves the infant his entire estate. Now, if the executor of the estate squanders the money and never tells the infant that he had this money coming, the infant has still been harmed, even though he didn't have a desire for the money that was spent. So you do not necessarily have to desire something in order to be harmed by being deprived of it. Now, sentience, the ability to feel pain, also has issues with it, because if that's what we ground human value in, then it would be permissible to kill anybody as long as you do it painlessly, such as putting an anesthetic into them first or doing it when they're asleep. In fact, there are some people, a famous example of this was a girl by the name of Gabby Gingras, who are born with a congenital inability to feel pain. So someone like that would never be a person, and it would be permissible to kill them for any reason that you wanted. So it's obvious that the ability to feel pain is not what grounds our personhood. Now, when it comes to interests, it's actually true that the unborn do have an interest in being kept alive. They don't have a conscious interest. They've never been able to consciously state that, you know, I, I want to be kept alive. But then again, neither have infants. And so you can argue that infants don't have an interest in being kept alive, but obviously they do. So even though the unborn don't have a conscious interest in being kept alive, they do have an interest in being kept alive in that they have a natural interest. And they, being biological organisms, even though they don't have a conscious desire to be kept alive, they do have a natural desire to be kept alive. 
And now finally, we're going to talk about the pro-life position. It's that humanness is what we all have that's the same. So if it's not a property that we all have in common, because trying to focus our our equal rights in a property that we all have in common all fail for one reason or another. The only thing that we can show that we all have in common is our humanness, our human nature. And since the unborn share in that human nature, the unborn also deserve equal rights and equal treatment as human beings. Now, one way that you can use this uh, equal rights argument in a pro-life talk or conversation, as it's been demonstrated by Stephen Wagner and others, uh, Justice for All, is to just say something like this. As you look around the room tonight, what is it that makes all of us deserving of equal treatment and possessors of the same basic rights? Each one of us in this room is different. We are different races and sexes. We possess different abilities and functions, and we have different beliefs and convictions. So what is it? If each of us is to be treated equally and we all possess the same basic human rights, there has to be some quality or characteristic we all share equally in common. So what is that thing? There is only one quality we all have equally, and that is we're all human. And being human is not a degreed property. It's not something you are more or less of. You are either human or you aren't. We all have a human nature and we all have it equally. But if that's the case, if it is our humanity that grounds our equality and value and rights, then the unborn are included as well as equal and valuable members of the human community, as well as possessors of basic rights from the time that they come into existence at conception. Stephen Wagner says this in his article, Common Ground and Uncommon Conversations. Why are sexism and racism wrong? Isn't it because they pick out a surface difference, gender or skin color, and ignore the underlying similarity all of us share. We should treat women and men, African Americans and whites, as equal and protect them from discrimination. Why? Because they all have a human nature. But if the unborn also has that same human nature, shouldn't we protect her as well? Now, there's a philosopher, David Livingston Smith, who wrote the book, Less Than Human, Why We Dehumanize Others. And he points out that whenever one person wants to dehumanize another valuable human being, they always point out either a functional characteristic or some other physical characteristic that two human beings don't have equal in order to justify the unequal treatment. And he highlights the example of when Native Americans were being mistreated in the New Worlds when European colonialists and imperialists were coming over and colonizing, like, say, the West Indies or South America. And they would point out that Native Americans were not functioning at the same level of rational discourse that Europeans could, and could therefore, the Native Americans could be enslaved and exterminated like animals. And so, as Chris Kayser points out, whenever we have attributed human value to some functional characteristic that can come and go throughout the course of a lifetime, we've always answered that question wrong. And he says, I'm not really convinced that we've answered it right in regards to abortion. And so... People like Frank Beckwith have pointed out that a human nature is something that does ground human equality better than any functional characteristic. Those are great points as well. So we've been talking about the equal rights argument, a philosophical argument for the pro-life position. We first outlined the argument that it consists of three questions. Do we all deserve equal treatment? Doesn't that mean there's something that's the same about us? And what is it that's the same about us? Then we talked about various abortion choice justifications for why adults deserve equal treatment, but 
the unborn don't. And then we looked at pro-life responses to those. And then finally, we talked about the pro-life position that it's our humanness, our human nature that grounds the necessity of treating each other equally better than any sort of functionalist argument does. So I'd like to thank you for listening, and I'd like to thank Aaron and Nathan for joining me for coming on and talking about this important topic. If you appreciated the information contained within, we would just ask that you share it around social media, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you frequent. And of course, rate and review us on our Facebook page and also on our Twitter account. Now, coming up here in just a few short weeks, I'm going to be debating a right to die with Matt Dillahunty, an atheist internet personality, on Friday, September 8th at the Bible and Beer Consortium in Dallas, Texas, and that will be at 6 p.m. local time. And then the next day, Saturday the 9th, I'm going to be appearing on the Sin Boldly radio program in Houston, which is hosted by Evan McClanahan, to have a discussion on abortion with a local abortion choice person. Uh, I'm not sure if that's going to be broadcast live or if it's going to be pre-recorded and broadcast later, but I'll find out and then I'll let everyone know as soon as I as soon as I find out. Now, this is a weekly podcast and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do for the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And if you'd like to donate to this podcast specifically, then you can indicate that in the notes section as well. And donations are also tax-deductible. Now, next week, we're going to be reviewing the pro-life syllogism, and we're going to talk about how to construct an argument and how specifically to respond to an argument that you construct. And if someone is not responding in the proper way, we'll explain how to respond to that as well. So on behalf of Nathan and Aaron, I'd like to thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.